Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dwyer and this is episode 13, The Nine Years' War and the Great Dublin Explosion of 1597. On March the 11th, 1597, a massive explosion ripped through the centre of Dublin, killing over a hundred people. The city was decimated, taking decades to recover. This happened in a century when Dublin had become a militarised city as the English colonial government began a series of brutal wars of reconquest in Ireland after three centuries that had seen their power decline. This podcast will tell the interlinked story between these wars and the Great Dublin Explosion of 1597. In the late 16th century, Dublin was the heart of Elizabethan royal power in Ireland. The city itself was not very large, with a population of less than 10,000 people. Geographically speaking, it was not much bigger than the medieval town that had thrived in the late 13th century. In fact, the city was still recovering from the 14th century, perhaps one of the darkest periods in medieval history, when war, famine and worst of all, the Black Death had reduced Dublin and most of European society to its knees. Life was tough for many Dubliners, even in the 16th century. Food was in short supply, so much so that it was not unusual for food to be imported from England. And as we shall see in this podcast, society was savagely violent. If this wasn't enough, the plague which had carried away nearly 50% of the city's population in 1348 sporadically returned, although none of the later reoccurrences were quite so devastating as that of 1348. In spite of this, people still got on with their lives, working, living and dying in what was in many ways still quintessentially a medieval city, a winding maze of narrow streets lined with houses and shops in the shade of a large castle in its southeastern corner. By the mid-16th century, Dublin, and its environs, known as the Pale, was the extent of English royal power in Ireland. Outside the city and the Pale 
lay the vast lordships of the great Anglo-Norman and Gaelic families. Over the previous three centuries, these had become increasingly independent from royal power based in London. They certainly could not be relied on by the Crown, so clearly illustrated when Henry VIII's top official in Ireland, the Earl of Kildare, had rebelled in 1534. The other great nobles in Ireland, individuals like the Earl of Desmond, the Earl of Ormond, or the Gaelic-Irish O'Neill Earls of Tyrone, were, to all intents and purposes, autonomous from the Crown as well, even though they did technically submit to royal rule. However, in the late 16th century, things were changing. The Crown set about reconquering the country, bringing these great earldoms to heel, and destroying those that would resist. At the centre of this new policy was the administration based in Dublin. It was here that the Crown would plan and execute what would be brutal wars unparalleled in Irish history to that date. This process would see armies and supplies arrive in the city to launch what became wars of annihilation against those who resisted the spread of English royal and state power. This policy of expanding royal power increasingly saw the Gaelic-Irish and indeed Gaelic culture as something that needed to be destroyed this in turn led to increasingly racist views which portrayed the Gaelic-Irish as almost subhuman and animalistic. Unsurprisingly, these conditions would see Ireland convulsed with violence in the late 16th century. This was graphically illustrated from the 1570s onwards. In 1574, the famed English explorer Sir Francis Drake participated in the massacre of hundreds of unarmed women and children on Ratlin Island off the coast of Antrim. This just three years before he began his much lauded and celebrated circumnavigation of the earth. Four years later, in 1578, in an event that shocked many, 78 members of the extended O'Moore family, who had been in rebellion in the Midlands, were massacred at the ancient ring fort of Mullochmast in Kildare. Despite being called to a meeting there, under a flag of truce by government officials. The annals of the four masters described how they were surrounded on every side by four lines of soldiers and cavalry who proceeded to shoot and slaughter them without mercy so that not a single individual escaped by flight or force. This policy of massacres and brutalisation was fast becoming the acceptable method of warfare in late 16th century Ireland. What was becoming a policy of annihilation was not limited to the Gaelic-Irish though, but to anyone who resisted the consolidation and spread of royal and state power in Ireland. When the old Norman family, the Fitzgerald Earls of Desmond, revolted for the second time in 1579, they too faced a similar wrath. This time another English explorer, Sir Walter Raleigh, participated in the massacre of the garrison of Smerwick in Kerry even after they had surrendered. In the aftermath of this, the Fitzgeralds were disinherited of their lands and the Crown settled loyal settlers from England in a process known as the Plantation of Munster. Indeed, Raleigh himself received a large plantation in East Cork. Dublin was the linchpin of these wars, being the seat of royal power and also the main port for supplies coming into the country. This militarisation of Ireland, and particularly Dublin, would create massive divisions in the city, resulting in consequences that no one could have foreseen. Mm -hmm.
In the late 1580s and early 1590s, it was increasingly clear that a major war was on the horizon when the crown started to push into Ulster, home of the three most powerful Gaelic-Irish families, the O'Neills, the O'Donnells and the Maguires. It was clear that these wars would be brutal as the colonial attitudes toward the Gaelic-Irish were increasingly hardening. Frequently, Crown officials referred to the Gaelic-Irish as barbarians or savages and talked about bringing civilization to Gaelic-Irish areas. One colonist, Barnaby Rich, described the Gaelic-Irish like beasts, void of law and all good. These attitudes led to the massacres mentioned earlier and ultimately the complete destruction of Gaelic society. While revolt in Ulster had been brewing in the early 1590s, the most powerful family in the north, the O'Neills, led by the second Earl of Tyrone, Hugh O'Neill, did not support it, and it was limited in scale. Initially, it seems Hugh O'Neill sought to accommodate himself within the status quo, but given the Crown were attempting to expand their power, and transform Gaelic society, and O'Neill was intent on maintaining the integrity of his earldom of Tyrone. Conflict was inevitable. Finally, in 1594, Hugh O'Neill revolted, beginning what became known as the Nine Years' War, a conflict that would unleash decades of tensions built up by the conquest. Led by Hugh O'Neill, what had been initially a minor revolt was transformed and now represented a major problem for the Crown, as O'Neill was not only a skilled soldier, but also a consummate politician. This would see Dublin, in many respects, turned into a military encampment, when, by 1595, the Crown began to mobilise to crush O'Neill, who was forcing Crown officials out of Ulster. This process saw large shipments of soldiers and supplies arrive into Dublin. However, the inhabitants were far from united about the upcoming struggle. The northern rebels weren't without support in the city. Only five years earlier, in 1592, two northern Gaelic prisoners, Art O'Neill and Hugh O'Donnell, had successfully escaped from Dublin Castle and were probably helped by some of the city's inhabitants. Even some of the merchant class in Dublin seemed to have supported the revolt as two merchants were tried for selling guns to the O'Neills in 1598. Aside from sympathy for the revolt, the build-up for war itself was a source of great tension in Dublin. The soldiers arriving in the city were frequently billeted on the local community. This meant that a complete stranger effectively moved into Dubliners' houses. It must have been a total look at the draw with whom the townspeople received. Perhaps some of the soldiers were decent, but given the massacres many of these soldiers would have seen and participated in, many must have been seriously psychologically damaged individuals. On top of this, the host families were supposed to be financially reimbursed, but this was always slow in coming, leaving the host families out of pocket. As the military build-up continued, the royal officials must have been somewhat worried about these tensions, but... Soon they had far more pressing concerns because when the war started in earnest, it didn't go well. Although the early skirmishes of the war had begun in 1592, it had only become a full-blown revolt in 1594 when Hugh O'Neill, 2nd Earl of Tyrone, threw his substantial political weight behind it. 
It took the administration in Dublin a year to fully grasp the situation they faced. But in 1595 they acted and sent a relief force to relieve the ongoing siege of the garrison at Monaghan. Soon, however, it became all too apparent this was going to be a long war. As the relief force marched west from Dundalk towards Monaghan, in what became known as the Battle of Clontibret, they were attacked. This battle was effectively a sustained ambush over several miles, which saw the English relief force being heavily defeated as they passed through hostile territory where the Gaelic Irish could use the landscape to their advantage. While the fighting raged in Ulster, Dublin was a hive of activity, with shipments of supplies arriving to be transported north. In early 1597, Dublin bustled with activity as a large shipment of gunpowder arrived in early March. The docks of the city were a hive of activity as the gunpowder was transferred off the ships and then transported to the castle. Each day teams of porters hauled the barrels of powder up to the castle and by Friday, March the 11th, the last of the shipment was reaching the docks. Strangely though, that day the docks were quieter than previous days. The porters weren't carrying the powder up to the castle. By midday, around 140 barrels of powder began to stockpile on the docks beside the large wooden crane used to lift them off the ships. Then, after midday, the normal hustle and bustle of the traders of the city was shattered when out of the blue a deafening explosion ripped through the heart of the city, tearing down houses and destroying the docks. The scale was phenomenal, beyond anything any conventional weapon of the day could do. The impact was catastrophic, destroying a substantial amount of the buildings on the waterfront. In the immediate aftermath, many must have been two days to realise what had just happened. But as they came round, they only had to look at the huge crater where the crane and the docks had once stood to realise that the 140 barrels of gunpowder that had built up in the docks had exploded. The power of this explosion was incredible. The spire of St. Audouin's Church, well away from the docks, was damaged and the casualties were terrifying. Around the quayside, body parts of people, literally blown apart, must have festooned the rubble, while screams must have emanated from people trapped in the remains of the twenty houses that had been flattened. In the following days, Dubliners would have had to pick through the rubble in the gruesome search for bodies. Overall, 126 people were killed, 75 from the city and 51 strangers. In a world with no ID, these strangers' families probably never knew what had happened to them. They just would simply never have returned home. For many people living in the city, the death of 75 people in a settlement of that size ensured that everyone must have known at least one person who died. While the inhabitants were used to death, they had not experienced anything like this. In the years when plague had returned, it could carry away dozens but there was a certain amount of warning as people got sick first. However, with this explosion, it was terrible in its immediacy. Naturally, the townspeople wanted answers. How did this happen? Who was to blame? Had the war finally come to Dublin? You should celebrate yourself every day. 
But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In the aftermath of such a catastrophic explosion, people wanted answers. No doubt initially, people were quick to blame Hugh O'Neill and believed that the war had come home, so to speak. However, once they sat down to think about how it could have happened, the scenario of an O'Neill plot seemed less and less likely. The whole issue was too coincidental to allow anyone to plan an intentional explosion. The powder should never have been on the docks in the first place. It was supposed to be transported from the docks straight to the castle, as it had been all week up until the Friday. Increasingly, it was clear the actual spark that ignited the powder was an accident, perhaps a horse's shoe striking off a cobblestone or some such minor incident. Whatever the cause, it was clear the key issue was how the massive amounts of gunpowder had been allowed to build up on the dock. Within a few days, the city mayor, Michael Chamberlain, set up a commission to look at this issue and determine the cause and find a culprit if there was one. Very quickly, it became apparent who was to blame. Once the gunpowder was unloaded on the docks, it needed to be hauled into the city, as we have seen. This gave work to several porters, who earned a living on the docks carrying goods for merchants. On the day of the explosion, the porters, as we saw earlier, were avoiding the docks, and through the investigation, it became apparent why. One porter, Rory Dougan, testified that the royal clerk of the storehouse of munitions a certain John Allen, had forced, as Dougan said, several others of his fellows to the number of eight by threatening with his dagger and hard speeches to transport the barrels. Worse still, another porter, Neil O'Molan, testified that they were paid under the allowance and rates appointed and usually paid in the city by the merchants and other inhabitants there. This was all happening, as we saw earlier, in a city where the population was weary of soldiers being billeted upon them and the general weariness of war. When the castle officials tried to press-gang the workers, it was the straw that broke the camel's back, and by Friday, March the 11th, the porters went on strike. Reporting to the Mayor's Commission, a fish merchant, William Dixon, said, when he asked the porters to carry his fish from the docks, they refused, citing a fear of John Allen as the reason. In the end, Allen was found responsible, for the explosion, given the brutal way in which he had treated the porters. This was of little consolation to the people who had lost loved ones in the explosion. The core of their city had been annihilated, 
and in a time of great poverty, it would take decades for it to be rebuilt. We hear little about the feelings in the city towards the military in the weeks, months and years afterwards, but relations cannot have been great. Regardless, they had to endure six more years of war as the crown pressed on with what became an increasingly brutal struggle. Year after year, supplies and soldiers disappeared into the north and many didn't return. The English were defeated at the Battle of the Yellow Ford in 1598, the Battle of the Curlews and the Battle of Maori Pass in 1600. However, attrition was starting to wear down the Gaelic Irish and by 1600 the English were able to land troops in O'Neill's rear and they operated a scorched-earth policy, creating a famine, depriving the rebels of food and support. Then hope arrived for O'Neill when, after years of attempting to gain Spanish support for his war, a Spanish fleet arrived off Kinsale. Kinsale was located in the extreme south and O'Neill decided he would need to march and meet his allies. After marching south to Kinsale, O'Neill was confronted by an English army and in 1601, at the Battle of Kinsale, he was decisively beaten. In the aftermath, the Spanish returned home and the rebellion began to falter as O'Neill returned to Ulster, clearly on the back foot. Two years later, the war petered out, spelling doom for Gaelic society. In 1607, the Gaelic nobility fled the island, never to return, in what became known as the Flight of the Earls. The English crown then set about destroying what was left of Gaelic society in Ulster. Tracts of land were granted out and in 1609 large numbers of settlers began arriving in from Scotland and England in a process that became known as the Ulster Plantation. This sowed the seeds of many of the tensions evident in the north of Ireland today. In Dublin, life was slow to recover from the explosion of 1597. About ten years later, John Speed, the famed English cartographer, arrived in Ireland to draw what is regarded as the earliest scaled map of the city. On his map, many houses close to the docks were still missing. No doubt in the streets of the city, many of those wounded bore lifelong scars and disabilities, serving as a constant reminder of what had happened. Far from bringing war in Ireland to a close, the brutal years of the Nine Years' War was only the opening salvo in a series of wars that would last through what was a near-apocalyptic 17th century in Ireland. The most destructive of these wars was that waged by Oliver Cromwell in the 1650s. Next time we will return to the series on early medieval Ireland, picking up the story in the aftermath of Brian Boru's death. Until then, Sloan. And don't forget to book your place on the upcoming tour of Anglo-Norman Dublin at history at irishhistorypodcast.ie Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.